When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. You are listening to Rum Buncher Radio 2020 Draft Special. Trey Anity, Nick Caparoso with you as always as we welcome in David Slusser for the first time, site expert, draft expert. David, thank you for being with us here tonight. Awesome. My pleasure. Glad to be here. Let's get right into it, guys. This draft is going to be college heavy. It's going to be an exciting one. And, and like we've been talking about these last few episodes, only five rounds. A very uh, a different draft than what we're used to this year. Let's get it going with the number one pick in the draft. It's been kind of the consensus that Spencer Torkelson is going to be that number one pick to Detroit. Um, break, break it down for us, guys. Why is Torkelson going to go number one? And if it's not Torkelson, who do you guys got? Uh, for me, it's it's going to be Torkelson. I think in terms of uh, pure bat, he is by far the best bat in the league. Um or in the draft this year, I should say. He, to what I've been reading about, he has the potential to play maybe corner outfield, um, which obviously helps his value, not just keeping him straight to first base. That speaks about his athleticism as well. Um, you know, I think for a while there, I, I mentioned how Austin Martin was viewed as the top prospect, but I think just the the overall profile of Torkelson potentially being a 40 home run type guy one day is just going to be too hard for anyone to pass on at one. Yeah, I mean, you look at him, Fangrass has him at 65 game power, 70 raw. He broke Bonds' freshman home home run record at Arizona State. Like, that's a name. Like, how can you get better than that? Kelly McDaniel compared him to Pete Alonzo. Long and hanging, um, Andrew Vaughn, who went, third last year to the White Sox. On the Cape, he played 30 games, 25 as a freshman, 5 as a sophomore, hit 340, 44, 745. And I know he wasn't getting a lot to hit this year either. Right. So in, um, in his career at Arizona State, he hit 337, 463, 729. So that's like a proven bat, both in college and with Wood on the Cape. I think one big thing you talked about, like with him breaking Bonds' record, I mean, that that's what – I mean, he's an elite bat, and he's safe, too, because of that. Like, he, Austin Martin could be a really good 5 to outfielder one day, but he also has potential not to reach that. Where Torkelson, he's the type of guy that he could move through the system relatively quick as well. So I think, overall, he just is the, the best bat in the draft and makes sense there. 
Right, and powers of premium, both in free agency and in the trade market. The cost to acquire that exactly. is high, so being able to get that in the draft, especially 1-1, is a pretty good opportunity for Detroit. Exactly. Yeah, and I think this year it's you know pretty clear-cut. Um, like you guys said, he has a chance to move up quickly, and I, I think that's something the Tigers are, are excited about. There's just really no reason not to go Torkelson with number one, but, but let's talk about that second pick. A little bit of controversy here. Some think that Austin Lacey is deserving of, of going number two. Austin Martin has been the hot name there. Who do you guys got at that second pick? So I think Nick Gonzalez goes second. Um, when Michael Elias was in Houston, he took Correa first overall. They were able to spend that money to, gra- to draft um, Lance McCullers. And by going Gonzalez, he could save some bonus pool and go with like a Nick Bitsko or Jordan Walker, Dax Fulton, Justin Lang there um, in the competitive balance pick. Uh, Gonzalez looks like a custom Hira type who last year, I've an estimated Woba model, had Hira at a 353 Woba. Scouts rave around the tool. Even though he plays in the environment of New Mexico State where the ball flies, he did tear up the cape, so they are still getting a premium talent. But by getting Gonzalez, I think they'd be able to spend elsewhere, and so Gonzalez makes sense there. That is an interesting thought um, with him potentially going at two. Uh, I think you're seeing that more and more where teams are still getting a premium prospect at that number two spot, but they're also saving money to use, like you said, later in the draft. Um, You know, for instance, if you go back to 2016, the Reds did that with Nick Senzel. You know, once again, premium college bat, Projected more in the 5 to 10 range by most sites. If you look at MLB Pipeline, for instance, had him at 7. But the Reds took him at 2. And they were able to use some of that draft um, savings later on in their draft. And that's something that, like you said, with Nick Gonzalez, you know, he could be another unique opportunity because you, you know you're getting a, a plus bat with him, which at the end of the day is the most important part of it. So for them... Uh, taking Gonzalez at two could make sense. But also, you know, if Asa Lazy, the big lefty, getting an ace pitcher, Baltimore, their rotation has always seemed to, to struggle. Like, they have never seemed to have that top flight starter. So grabbing Lacey could give them that, you know, opportunity to grab that pitcher that they desperately need in that division as well. So if, if they don't, if they don't go that route of thinking, let's save some money by taking, you know, Nick Gonzalez or someone like that. I think Lacey is probably the, the pick for them. And, you know, such a, a big, like you said, Nick, such a big left-handed guy like that. I think it makes sense at number two, but um, I'm with you too there, David. I think saving some money with Gonzalez would be, uh, you know, a viable route as well. So let's say that uh, maybe the Orioles take Lacey at number two or they take Gonzalez. Austin Martin falls. Where does Miami go? And maybe let's hear number three through uh, six as we lead up to that, that Pirates pick at number seven. Who do you guys got going in the, the middle um, of the top ten there? You know, I think when you start looking at those picks three, four, five, six, you know, a lot of the names you're seeing there are going to be Austin Martin and Emerson Hancock. Those two are definitely going to be in that mix to go uh, in front of the Pirates. You know, there, there's the hope that maybe one of them slides to seven, but I don't see it, not in this year's draft, where there's going to be more preference on college players. Uh, the one high school player who could slip in there is Zach Veen. Um, 
you know, right now on Baseball America, they actually have him going as high as two. Uh, I don't know if that will happen uh, unless maybe Baltimore is, you know, going to work something out with him beforehand type of thing. But outside of that, um, you know, those are kind of the, the top four names to watch in front of the Pirates. And then from there, it kind of gets a little mixed. What do you, what do you think, Dave? Well, I mean, you also have Max Meyer from Minnesota. He tore up the Big Ten tournament last year, I believe. Um, he has a 27.7% strikeout rate last year. This year he got off to a 42% rate. He is short, but he does throw gas, touches 100, has a plus slider. He's a good athlete on the mound, and we see nowadays with some pitchers, height doesn't really matter. And I think that... The pick right before the Pirates at six with Seattle, who's taken two pitchers in the first round over the last two years. I think Max Meyer would likely be able to fit there. But like you said, Veen, Lacey, Martin, Hancock could all fit through three through um, six. Or even if Baltimore doesn't take Nick Gonzalez, he could fall in there as well. Right, right. And that, that'll be the interesting thing. I think Baltimore has kind of a lot of control on what happens here. Uh, in terms of what they do with that second pick, just because everyone knows that Torkelson's going first. So, you know, two is where it's going to be interesting to see how the draft board falls from there. And I think that's where, like, the signability comes in with, like, the high school players. Only Zach Veen seems like the top high school player with, like, Austin Hendrick being a bit lower, McAble being a bit lower, especially as a high school pitcher. So I think the signability factor will come in. Right. And that's what I worry about in terms of the Pirates, like, if that premium college player will be there or not for them just because of signability concerns this year in general. Right, because two years ago they got swaggery because Oakland just took Kyler Murray off of a – with the athletic build allowing like a top prospect who tore up with Team USA, has that power, defense, speed. He was able to fall to 10, and that was just a few years ago. Yeah, so I guess, you know, one one thing, you know, we always talk about it and I probably write it in every draft article that I put out. It, it's hard to predict, you know, and, and really it's those are the names that you're looking at the top of the board right now. But there's a good chance that one of them falls out. Like you said, Gonzalez, I could see, you know, potentially falling to the Pirates at seven. But right now it kind of seems like Emerson Hancock is the one sliding down the board a little bit. And it's, it's interesting um, because, really, he shouldn't be. I don't think it's so much on him. He's still throwing hard. He had good numbers this spring in his limited work. But he's kind of the name that, you know, a few years back when Brady Singer, he was a similar thing where he was always viewed as, like, a top-ten prospect. But for some reason, you know, team soured on him as the draft got closer and he slipped down. Right, with Hancock, you have – he missed the end of 2019, had some, I believe, shoulder problems, but like he came back fine right. this spring, but he also didn't pitch last summer, so you don't really know with him until the medicals right, come out. Right, right. And like you said, Nick, I think there's so many guys every year that, you know, come in highly touted, or this is going to be the next, you know, Mike Trout, or this is going to be the next Cyan Award winner one day, but with, with baseball especially, the draft is, is such a question mark to see. And, you know, you see a lot of the number one picks usually pan out in some form or fashion, but you really just never know. And, and you really never know who's going to fall. Let's say this year, who's going to fall to number seven, the Pirates' first pick in the draft. Nick, I think you mentioned it a couple weeks ago. You're pretty high on, on Heston Gierstad. 
being that pick, the outfielder from Arkansas. Has that changed at all? Who do you guys got going to Pittsburgh with that number seven pick? Yeah, that, that's changed for me. Um, I think the more information that's come out, the more that I think he's going to probably um, slide down closer to 10. I think, you know, he has the projectable power and he's a premium bat, which is something the Pirates need, but I don't think it's exactly what Ben Charrington looks for. You know, and I think, like Dave mentioned earlier, if Nick Gonzalez slips past and doesn't get drafted by, say, Baltimore at two, I think there's a good chance he ends up to the Pirates at seven. I know Baseball America has a mock there right now. And I think the Pirates would be happy and excited to get more of a safe bat in Gonzalez versus Jerstad. David, who do you got at seven? Um, I have the Pirates taken Emerson Hancock. He only has okay track man according to Kyle McDaniel, but it's a 70 change. And Ben Sherrington is going to lead the draft this year for the first time. And when he was the GM in Boston, he took Trey Ball. He took Matt Barnes. He took Henry Owens. All big pitchers. He also took JBJ, but um, Kershaw doesn't follow that. He has a lot of swing and miss in the bat. And like, Miles don't really like that. Last year, he struck out at a 21.7% strikeout rate, only walked 7% of the time. This year, he got off to a hot start. He only struck out 11.5% of the time, walked 9% of the time. But given the limited sample, this is where scouts knowing the player comes in. And I think with his time throughout Arizona, scouts have a feel if his chase actually improved or if it's just a limited sample. And so as a result, I think they'll be safer and go after that pitcher. He's an athlete. Kerchat's corner outfielder. Delacari, who led the draft for the Pirates in 2012 through 2019, still there. Sanders didn't really look for those types when he was in Toronto and led the draft in 2017-2019 there. And so as a result, I think Hancock will fall in. The one scare is that track man today just being okay. Justin Newman is the Pirates' senior director of quantitative analysis, and he focuses on amateur scouting. So I'd be cautious with okay track man knowing that the pirates have a person designated for amateur scouting on the quantitative side but given the profile the 70 change the fastball he pitched at georgia with strickland as his coach he has a good pedigree and i think as a result he'll be the pick at seven yeah i think it's you know if they i i hope hancock is there at seven for them uh you know i like you said and we looked at this the other day with the the projectability that Charrington looks for in his pitchers as Huntington. But obviously, you know, with the change in management and coaching, we're hearing more about how they want to start using these trackman data and, you know, analytics to find the talent. And so that, like you said, that could be a concern for them. But I also think, you know, you see a 6'4 pitcher coming out of the SEC who has a mid-90s fastball, a lot of projectability. You know, it's a relatively, for your first draft, you know, you're getting a surefire top pitching prospect. You know, it's hard to pass on. Right, but like even the old front office in the draft, they did focus on the track, man. We know that's part of the reason Shane Baz was a target. Steven Jennings has high spin on his pitches. So we do know that even under the previous regime that they did focus on track man and analytics and all those guys are still there, including the scouting director. 
including Dan Fox, who's the director of informatics for the team. Justin Newman was just quantitative analyst last year. So like they still have that core there. So it does give me a pause, but I think like you said, overall, he's six, four, he's from Georgia. He has that pedigree. So I think overall it makes sense. Nick, you published an article this week talking about Ben Sherrington's trend. Um, talk about your research on that, kind of what you found um, and, and how that differs from Neil Huntington. We, we touched on it just a minute ago here, but um, you know, what, what'd you find throughout that process? You know, Dave and I actually uh, were the ones I, I called him up because this was something I wanted to, you know, write about. And we were, I think, a little surprised to see, in a way, he's similar to Huntington, like I said earlier about the pitchers. I would have guessed with how he is talking about just looking for the top-end talent, I would have guessed that he would have drafted – four out of the five pitchers he drafted in the top five rounds in his time in Toronto were six, four or taller, you know, which was something Huntington stressed as well. And there's a lot of reasons to, but like Dave also said, that's not everything anymore in today's game. So I'll be interested to see, you know, how much of that changes, like Dave said, versus them using the trackman data. Uh, the other thing was it didn't seem like, he looked at corner outfield and that's, that's why my stance has changed on uh, Jerstad from Arkansas because everything that Charrington was drafting was either behind the plate. He took three catchers in those three years, middle infield, lots of shortstops. And we already saw him do that uh, with Paguero in the Marte trade, as well as pitchers, right-handed pitchers, which he, picked up Brendan Malone as well so it seems like you know on one hand he's drafting similar to Huntington in terms of pitchers middle infielders athletes but it also seems like he doesn't stress that power hitting corner outfielder as much as Huntington did through the years of his drafts what do you think Dave so like when you look at the Pirates have three guys in the front office that have ran drafts Sherrington ran the draft 2012 through 2015 as the GM of the Red Sox. Joe Delacari ran the draft as the Pirates Director of Scouting from 2012 through 2019. Sanders, the Director of Scouting from 2017 through 2019, ran the draft in Toronto. In the first five rounds, Sherrington drafted around 60% of pitchers, or in other words, 60% of his picks in the first five rounds were pitchers. Sanders was under 20% and Delacari was around 40%. So it seems like they will lean pitcher given Sherrington Delcari's preferences, whereas Sanders, um, he was mainly middle infield, which was a little north of 30. Outfield, a little north of 30. Delcari was outfielder. Delcari, my mistake, was a little over 30. And Sherrington really only focused on pitchers. So I think it's pretty safe to say like they will focus on pitchers and athletic middle infielders, outfielders. When you think about like under Delcari, Newman, he can play the outfield. Adam Frazier can play the outfield. They were both shortstops in college. Cole Tucker's athletic enough. He could probably play the outfield. So I think you're looking for O'Neill Cruz as well. So when you think about the team, you think about – or the front office of the team, you think about them taking pitchers and athletes. And so, therefore, I don't think a corner outfielder would really make sense at one. At the, not one, but like the first round. Yeah, so that's interesting too, your your point about the, the research on Sanders – 
being more in charge of looking for the, the shortstops and the infielders and the hitters, while Charrington seemed to be more focusing on the pitching, you got to think that that's probably something you know they've been preparing in a similar fashion for this year's draft. Right, and another thing is over 60% of the time, Sanders in his three years in the first five rounds in Toronto took college players. Delacari was a little north of 50 um, Sherrington in Boston was around 55%. And so I think early on, you're looking at the pitchers and you're looking at college, and Hancock just screams that fit. Yeah, I think Hancock and or and or Gonzalez, depending on whichever one slides to them, which is looking very likely at this point that one of them will. It's going to be interesting to see, uh, like you guys said, just kind of how – if we see a if we see a trend early on in this draft, because the Pirates do have that seventh pick along with the thirty first pick, the second pick of the second round, let's get into that. Does anybody fall out of the first round right in the Pittsburgh hands with that pick, or do they have to maybe settle on a guy at number thirty one? So guys that would fall out of the first round, and you're looking at the competitive balance round. You're looking at guys that are high school players with high demands which could be like a Nick Bitsko, who has projections. I think he's eight from Baseball America. Kyle McDaniel hasn't connected with Philly, but he's a bit of an unknown. So if he has a high bonus demand, you can see him fall or similar players. Um, you have college arms that are tweeners, like Bryce Drower from Duke, Bobby Miller from Louisville. Those guys are late first round. They could easily slide to 31. And then you have the Tommy John guys. JT Ginn had Tommy John this year. He was going to probably be a top 10 pick from Mississippi State. You have Clayton Beater from Texas Tech who had Tommy John in high school. Those two could fall out of like the late first round and be available during that competitive balance round. Yeah, I think it will be interesting um, what the Pirates do at the 31st pick, depending, like you said, on you know how the, most of the first round plays out and who's available. But also, a lot of it will depend on what they do at 7. They take a guy like uh, Hancock, or even Gonzalez at that point. I don't envision them saving a lot of money against their overall bonus pool. So if neither of them are there and they end up going Patrick Bailey, the the top catcher in the draft, the NC State product, who's projected to be, you know, around ten to fifteen and they save a little bit of cash there, then like you said, they might be able to throw some money at one of those high school players that has a little bit of higher bonuses that might fall out. You also just in general have some guys like Justin Lang, who's a big projectable high school pitcher from Texas who's committed to Dallas Baptist. So he's going to be someone tough to sign, but being he's right in that area, if the team saves a little bit of money, they might be able to you know, persuade a guy like him. But there's also the catcher Dylan Dingler um, from Ohio State who's been kind of rising up draft boards as the draft has gotten closer. He's ranked at 29 on fan graphs right now. Uh, if the Pirates do not get a catcher at seven, um, you know, they Charrington has shown that he is prioritizing catching. So I think there's a good chance a, a top pick could be used on one. So Dingler at 29 ranking at could be there for them at 31. So as Nick mentioned, Dingler is a catcher from Ohio State. He's athletic. He played center field, bat. He's rising up draft boards. My draft model and in the model in which I only use fan graphs data, he's got around a 50% chance of being there at pick 31. 
it only uses one source. It's only through 2015 through 2019. So like that can be viewed more as an upper bound. Once I incorporate the MLB pipeline data, he falls to 34.75% of being there at 31. So he's kind of probably on outside chance, maybe like a third, maybe even lower. Um, I think 50 is too high. It's the upper bound, like I said. 34 is probably more of the median. It's perhaps the lower bound is 20%. So he has a chance to fall there. I wouldn't hold my breath. But if he does, he would make sense for the Pirates at 31. Right. And that's something we talked about earlier. And a, a big thing is, you know, like we talked about, the, the college uh, preference this year. Uh, teams looking to, you know, keep close to the bonus allotment that they're given. They're not trying to go over bonus with prep players as much. Um, so Dingler, you're right, will probably end up going a little higher than 31, unfortunately. So let's talk 44 now. Um, only 13 picks later. Who falls to uh, to that pick for the Pirates? Um, I think when you look at the Pirates, you looked at some of the picks they had last year with either Matt Frazier or Matt Gorski a couple years ago, Jared Oliva. This year, I think they go with Zach Deloach, who's a center field from A&M. He struggled as a sophomore. He only hit 200, 318, 294. But that summer on the Cape, he won the batting title at 353. He started this year off with a line of 421, 547, 789. It was a lighter schedule, but it's nice to see that production. He has a little swing and miss in his game. His walk rates and strikeout rates were approximately equal in his time at a Eric Longenhagen called him plus speed, and he has at least average raw power. But so when you look at that profile, you see, okay, he's got talent, but he might be a little raw. How can we work, at, work on this? Sherrington's got a history with player development. He oversaw player development in Toronto. He oversaw player development in Boston before he was the GM. So... Given that Delacari's track record, given that Sherrington's track record at player development, Zach Deloach seems like a reasonable fit there for the Pirates. And I think it's, you know, once again, we could see them go in two directions here, depending on how things go earlier in the draft. Uh, a pitcher to look for there would be Tommy Mace. He's a big right-handed pitcher from Florida. He stands at six foot six, 210 pounds, so he has a little bit of room yet to add. Um, you know, just as we talked about earlier, that big body projectability, college arm, you know, our, it has a fastball singing to the load to mid nineties already has decent secondary stuff, probably, uh, ceiling, you know, number three mid rotation type guy, but that's not terrible when you're talking pick 44 either. Certainly not. Certainly not. And, and like you said, it's hard to project all the way down to 44, um, you know, once you start talking about guys that maybe, you know, are sleepers that, that fall or guys that get drafted earlier. Well, I will say another name that could make sense either at 44 or even higher at 31, depends on how the team sees them, would be Jordan Schuster. He's a lefty from Wake Forest. He has a plus changeup similar to Emerson Hancock. He does have relief risk given that his command is a little off, but this year he started off with a 43 to four strikeout to walk rate. Last year on the Cape, he had a 141 ERA, 25% K minus walk rate, and some starts. He's from Wake Forest, who has a $12 million pitching lab that helps with injury prevention and player development. We know that the team's trying to go towards that. So Schuster, he's ranked 72nd on fan graphs. I'm not sure on the other sites. So he could 
potentially be in play at 44 if they like the arm, knowing that he might not be there at 78. Or given the other site's rankings, perhaps he could even be in play at 31. He, he sounds like a little bit of a wild card, but, you know, I kind of like what you're saying with, you know, even worst case, it might sound like he could be a back end of the bullpen type arm one day, uh, which once again, all things considered at pick 44, if you get, you know, a very good reliever out of that, you'll take that as well. So he could make sense. And, you know, I know we, I keep talking about it, but like you said, he's ranked a little lower than that. But if they like the arm, they like the potential, they like the pedigree because like you said of Wake Forest and their pitching program down there, maybe once again, they look at it as an opportunity to get a, a prospect they really like at 44 and maybe save some money against their overall bonus. Right. And Long and Hanging at Fangrass point out that he was low 90s, crafty lefty type, but he had a big velo spike this spring. So it's important for like their scouts to know, hey, is this real? Is this noise or is it the actual signal? And that could be a way to get a potential undervalued arm if that velocity is real and they could gamble on the control coming and him performing like he did on the Cape. So if we're talking, um, getting into the scouting aspect a little bit further here, what are guys maybe looking at, um, you know, the most with these rounds? When you get into the first round, you you have guys that have proven themselves, that have really shown that they're they're outclassing the rest of the field. But in these middle rounds, you, you see guys that, um, you know, maybe a scout just saw a certain thing. What's what's their mindset? What's the thought process that goes into these later rounds? You know, I think one thing, um, other than signability, which – I think is a big thing in the middle of rounds, but this year might is going to be different. Um, I think one thing they look for is tools, specific tools. You're not going to find the five tool players per se in the middle of rounds. Yes, we we end up finding them, right? You know, the the guys yeah. who exceed expectations and all that. But for the most part, I think teams are looking for, hey, you know what, this guy defensively, we don't know where he's going to play, but we really like his bat. You know, or, hey, this guy's got a really, really good glove, and we think he could be a good utility player down the road, which, yeah, that doesn't necessarily, like, that's not what you want to see, but there's something said for producing major league talent also. And so I think, you know, when scouts are looking at these middle-round college guys, they're, they're looking for, you know, specific roles that they think they could fill in the organization one day. When you look at scouting, there's, like, there's three rules of, or three schools of thought. There's the Theo Epstein school, which puts letters and A1 players are Hall of Famer and A2 players are perennial all-star. A B1 is like an occasional all-star. A B2 is an average player and so on. And the future value base, it's war, it's war based in 80, 70, 55, 60, those types is the 2080 scale. Then OFP is the 75th percentile outcome. It follows the 2080 scale as well. So like Nick said, you look at tools, but another thing is when, for instance, the Epstein when he was in Boston, they used neuroscouting, which looked at um, cognitive abilities and looked at like the brain. Um, it helped them draft Mookie Betts, who was a fifth round pick, and that was one um, inefficiency that Epstein and the Red Sox used then. Sherrington was part of that draft. And so not just looking at the tools, like just raw exit velocity, spin rate, you also can look at potentially the brain, but with the limited data and not being able to contact prospects this year, you have to rely on how do this guy's hands work? What's the torque? Are the mechanics solid? 
just relying on what the scouts judgment of mechanics, pitching mechanics on hitting. Can this guy catch up to elite velocity? Can he read the breaking ball? Can we train him to be better? Can the swing path improve and similar things to that? Just old fashioned scouting. So that being said, what's going to go into the, the final two picks for Pittsburgh in this draft and maybe give us a couple names for who the pirates would take down there in the last two rounds. So if we're looking at pick 78, there's a high school pitcher. His name is Markevian Hunt. He's 30 or he's 73rd on Kelly McDaniel at ESPN's board. He's 84th on the pipeline. He's 76 on fan graphs. He'll be 17 on draft day, which for teams that focus on age, that's important. It could go into an analytical model. He's a good athlete. He's 6'1", 175 pounds. We know Joe Del Cari. He's like that through his eight years as scouting director and within the Pirates. Um, he throws 96, so he's got that profile. He can throw hard, perhaps maybe being only 175. He can add some weight, get similar to Max Meyer. High school arm at 108. There's Colby Halter. He's a shortstop. Maybe he has to move to second base, maybe third base, or maybe he can stay at short. He's 87th on ESPN, 148 on MLB, and 106 on Fangraphs. He's old for the class. He's committed to Florida, but he's a 6'1 shortstop, and he hit 419 for Team USA. He's projected on a hit tool, basically, which given that to develop players, the hit is probably more important than the field because in all field, no glove, you are going to make that trade off most days. And then at 138, another high school player like Slade Wilkes, he's 125th on ESPN, 111 on MLB, 165 on Fangraphs. He's already 19, which runs counter to the pick at 78 with Hunts, given the age differences. He's 6'2", 215, so he's pretty, like, built. He has no room to grow, and as a high school player that's old, maybe that's worrisome. Long and hanging noted, he had some of the best exit velos, which will play in the draft model. That goes into what we just talked about with scouting and how what teams can look for and what they will target in the draft. He's only a corner art player given his size, so that limits him. We know Del Cari, Sherrington, Sanders haven't really liked that when they've led the drafts, but power is a premium like I mentioned earlier, and through free agency and the trade market that costs a lot, so the best way to acquire it is to draft and develop it continuously. So as a result, I think Wilkes, despite being a power right fielder, power left fielder, would make sense the fifth round. Yeah, I mean, those a lot of those names uh, make sense for the Pirates. And one thing that I noticed, and you know, this is what we talked about earlier, is you were talking about a lot of middle infielders as well as Maybe potentially corner outfield, you mentioned, obviously, because there, there's a good chance they end up probably taking a mixed bag of positions. But I really think you're going to see the Pirates probably focus on um, finding those those infield prospects. I think why Steve Sanders um, really, you know, puts a premium on shortstops is because if, if you have the ability to play shortstop, you most likely have the ability to play second, third or anywhere in the outfield, even if you, you know, if your arm's good enough. So I think we're going to see the Pirates probably use another, you know, higher draft pick on a middle infielder. Um, It just seems like that's the trend. And like I said, some of those names you said make sense. One name that, you know, I find interesting is actually ranked at 74, Kate Horton. He's a uh, high schooler who's committed to Oklahoma 
he's listed as a right-hand pitcher or a shortstop. You know, standing at 6'2", he kind of has that projectability for either position. It seems like that scouts are kind of split on uh, whether he would be able to play at shortstop or not. But even if he moves to third base, that's a position the Pirates are kind of thin at. They could also experiment and kind of see, you know, what they have in him. Uh, Charrington, uh, in his first draft, took Trey Ball, who was a high schooler and was projected as a left-handed pitcher or a corner outfielder. So, you know, it didn't go well. So it'd be interesting to see if Charrington would try to stay away from that for that reason. But it could also show that, you know, he just likes finding athletic uh, players. Another name that could potentially be there, um, Alex Santos. He's a high school pitcher. He's committed to Maryland. McDaniel ranks him 67 on ESPN. He's 75th on fan graphs. What's notable about him is what Long and Hangin, who is fan graphs writer, wrote. Um, he currently is low 90s, but he's up to 95 with a 55 curveball. So, like, a little, below, a little above average with the curveball, but he has high spin rates on both. That would probably play well with Justin Newman and Alex Department. Nick Griffin, he's a left-handed pitcher. He is committed to Arkansas. He's 18 years old, 6'4", 175. He is 83rd on fan graphs. And he is um, 143rd on Kyle McDaniel's board at ESPN. So there's a lot of variance in the rankings. Perhaps he could be drafted later. Depends on how teams see him. Long and Hanging noted that the curveball he can spin well, which again would relate to Justin Newman in that analytics side of the scouting department and trying to draft players based off of that model as well. And he, he's also got listed uh, right field with him on fan graphs and that's six, four frame Nick Griffin. Like, you know, it's once again, like, like we've talked about projectability, athleticism um, is what they're probably going to be looking for, which sounds simple. You know, every team wants a projectable player who's going to be a good athlete and a good player, but I'm talking, you know, purely like, you know, for the specific pitchers and hitters that they're looking for. Right. And then you have like the Jeff Chriswells who, if you watch the college world series last year from Michigan throws hard, nice slider. Maybe he's a relief pitcher. Maybe he's a starter. He could be there round four, round five. Yeah, I mean, it will be interesting. One thing I think we both can agree on is this is a big draft for the Pirates, and Charrington, I have a lot of confidence in him and Steve Sanders to do a good job. I'm excited to see how it unfolds for them. Uh, I think there's a good reason to be optimistic about the direction this team's heading in under his front office, and I think we're going to get a taste of that on Wednesday. Um, like you said, it's a big draft. This is first as a pirate. He's known for building farm systems. And though he was reluctant to trade some as a GM, but trying to build, he signed Hanley Ramirez, Pablo Sandoval. Didn't really work out. He kept Mookie Betts. He kept a lot of his prospects. They did win the World Series. A lot of it he built the core for Dave Dombrowski when he took over. So it is a big draft for him. Big draft for Steve Sanders, who got a promotion. Big draft for Joe Delacari, who's job might be in jeopardy considering Neil Huntington got fired, Cal Stark got fired, so who knows where Larry Broadway and Joe Delacari go. So it's a big draft in general for those three who have all previously led drafts, and it's two of their first in Pittsburgh. It's potentially the last for another. It's a big opportunity for the Pirates to continue to build out that farm system. 
it is going to be interesting to see those later round picks and really all of the picks in this 2020 MLB draft with only five rounds. Um, it's going to be a packed and exciting one. And we are going to be here for you guys producing content on the article side here at Rum Bunter Radio as well. Be sure to stay tuned. Wednesday, June the 10th, just a couple days away now. And the Pittsburgh Pirates are gearing up for their first in the era of Ben Charrington. That is all the time we have for this draft special. For Nick Caparoso and David Slusher, David, you've been an incredible guest for this episode. Thank you for joining us. My name is Trey Yannity. You can find us, as always, on fansided.com slash rumbunter, on our social media apps, and spreaker.com. Thank you for listening. Let's go Bucks. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.